Hello. Thank you so much, Julie. And thanks, everyone, for a really great weekend so far and being such good hosts and making me feel so um, welcomed here. It's been really fantastic. I, I appreciate you having me back twice. I know what you were thinking. You hadn't had enough of me this morning. And I always think to myself, though, this is a very unique opportunity. I do speak an awful lot about um, Bill and Lois Wilson and about Stepping Stones. Um, but at 10 years sober, I very rarely really speak about myself anymore. So um, thank you for a whole hour to talk about me. <laughs> me. It's, I think I made an amends to the world when I got sober that I wouldn't talk about myself quite so much because I had done so much of it before I got sober. Um, I have been sober for about 10 and a half years. August 29th, uh, 2001 was my sobriety date, and I live in Westchester County, New York. I have a home group there, and I have a sponsor. And there really, you know, couldn't be a more unlikely candidate to be standing up here in front of you guys today saying that she has 10 and a half years, because when I first, when the idea of going to AA was first uh, brought up to me as a possibility, I was so offended and disgusted and very angry and thought, you know, really, I would I think I would rather go to jail than ever have anything to do with you people. And I just hated it. And my father was an AA member. Um, so I don't know what he did to not give me such a great impression, but it was the furthest thing from my mind, even, you know, ten and a half years ago that I would still be standing here today. So um, sometimes when I go through this story myself, um, it just really blows my mind that I'm <laughs> that I'm here. Um, but I'll do the typical, I'll start a little bit with my childhood. I was born and raised in Connecticut and uh, to a perfectly normal family, you know, no, no major traumas or tragedies to report. Um, yet, I think I started out pretty a pretty crabby kid, pretty restless, irritable, and discontented kid from the beginning. And I also always remember in those days having a weird fascination with alcohol. Um, I have a sister who's two and a half years older than me, and she did not have had the exact opposite. She had a real aversion to my parents were sort of hippie, uh, pot-smoking uh, drinkers, partiers, and I thought it was great. You know, I just thought, I loved watching the grown-ups drinking wine and smoking cigarettes, and my mother remembers me telling her, um, bringing wine to her and saying, you should drink wine, it makes you giggle, you know, it makes you happier. Um, and I loved it, and I, and I, um, what wanted to go closer to those people, whereas my sister had a health, a really healthy sense of aversion from of people uh, who were drunk and partying, and she didn't feel safe. I felt fantastic, and I remember being about eight years old. It's still to this day, my favorite song is that Pina Colada song from the 70s, and that song came out, and I was so young, and I just remember thinking, you know, I do like Pina Coladas, I do like being caught in the rain, you know, this is going to be me. And my life, and I could just envision what my future was going to be like, the party animal and, you know, making love on the, in, under moonlight and whatever else that song said. I had no idea what that meant, but it was just sounded so great. And from that day on, I mean, I really never uh, had a problem with it. So I was 15 years old when I finally had my first drink. And interestingly, though, I, my whole family, all my blood closest blood relatives are allergic to alcohol, like physically. Um, my sister had her first drink when she was about 16. She was so violently ill that she she thought this really was not very fun. I'm never going to do this again. And to this day, she's hardly drinks at all. I had that experience where uh, I was terrified to have my first drink because I was worried about getting sick. Um, and I did get very, very sick um, drinking um, peppermint schnapps and milk be a good one for today, um, but it was called a candy cane or something and uh, tasted good going down. But I got very sick and, and was incredibly hungover the next day and had to hide my hangover from my mother. And I just remember thinking after it was over going, that was really awful. You know, how am I going to make this work? <laughs> like this has got to work. There was no option at 15 years old to, that not doing it wasn't an option. I, I knew the way it made me feel and the way it made me able to feel a part of and, and um, give in to the peer pressure and feel cool and hip was really riveting for me. And there was no choice at that point of not drinking again. I was addicted from the minute I started. And I would say by 19 years old, you know, I was pretty much a full-fledged daily drinker. Um, 
And my parents caught on to it pretty quick because teenagers like me tend to be very bad at hiding these things. And I can remember, you know, my father got sober when I was 15. I think he got sober right around the time when I had my first drink. And I remember that family sit down where he told us that he was an alcoholic and he was um, just going to AA meetings and stuff. And I didn't really get it. Um, and all I do remember, though, is him leaving us an awful lot at dinner time on Christmas Eve, on Thanksgiving Day for whole weekends at a time to go to AA meetings and to go off camping and stuff with his sponsor. Um, but it didn't really get brought into our family. So I did, definitely didn't walk away with a, with a very good impression. Um, although my dad did stay sober. He's still sober today. Um, so I came home drunk one night, uh, or at least smelling of vodka at about 15 years old. And my father freaked out because he was you know, like six months to a year sober at the time. And here his youngest is, is falling, you know, going right for it. And I remember him sitting me down at the table and he said, listen, kiddo, you know, you're, uh, if you have one parent who's an alcoholic, you have a 50% chance of being an alcoholic. And if you have two parents who are alcoholics, you have an 85% chance of being an alcoholic. And your mother might not be an alcoholic, but her whole family is crazy. And so you have like a 77% chance of being an alcoholic. And he was so angry, and he was baring his teeth at me. I remember when he got mad, it was very rare, so it was scary. But I just remember thinking, okay, you know, alcoholic. The, 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 the identity of being an alcoholic did not bother me at all, and I envisioned being like Stevie Nicks. You know, it's, this is going to be really dramatic, and I'm going to live this glamorous life where men are going to have to pick me up and carry me and take care of me and, you know, sing and smoke and dance on bars. You know, and therefore, I mean, I really didn't have, I was a pretty smart kid, but I didn't really have major dreams for like a career or anything. It was really this party animal I wanted to be. But at the same time, I was a horrible party animal because I literally couldn't get more than three or four drinks in me before I physically got sick. That was my whole life. And I never, even once in my drinking career, I got sober when I was 30, um, did I ever black out? Because I could never actually drink enough to black out. I would get sick before that time came. So the vast majority of my drinking career was spent figuring out what that sweet spot was where I could start drinking and keep drinking until bed without getting sick. Um, and sometimes I didn't, you know, maybe by the time I was 30, maybe I was like 85% successful at not getting sick. But usually, oftentimes I would get sick and I would, you know, get sick, lay down, take a nap, and then get up and and party again. And I also, my behavior was just outrageous. I was the worst teenager you could imagine, my poor parents. Um, and I uh, was kicked out of the dorms uh, at college for fighting, and, I, and uh, a lot with girls who didn't really appreciate my friendships with their boyfriends and stuff like that. <laughs> and, you know, I loved a lot of these guys, I thought, but they, I was the party girl. I was that girl that no one took seriously, that everyone liked to party with, but nobody respected and nobody took seriously. And I could never understand why. Like, why does nobody love me, you know? Um, and I think I, so I got in a fight and I um, got kicked out of school. Well, I got to finish school, but I got kicked off campus. Um, and within a couple of years, I had to move out of the city I was living in, New Haven, Connecticut, um, because I was in danger. My car was, my tires were getting slashed. My car was getting, um, you know, I was getting threatened on the streets because I was a troublemaker. You know, I could sit there and go, you know, but I'm, and in my mind, I was like, I'm such a nice person and I love everybody and I want to be friends with everybody. But I was causing trouble left and right. And I pulled my first geographic and I moved to New York City. Um, to go to graduate school because I figured I had no money to move to New York City and I figured if I take out student loans and go to graduate school that I can live in New York City without having to work and I'll live off my student loans. Um, and I did that. And, it, and it, New York, moving to New York City was actually a pretty good plan in the end because I had also become sort of a, 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 a thief. Uh, <laughs> yes. And I had gotten caught, like, stealing, you know... Um, nail polish from a shop, stop and shop, and the only reason I didn't get arrested was because I was this, this, you know, cute white blonde, sort of, didn't, they, they didn't want to make a big deal out of it, but I was, it was, it was pathological, I had a really hard time, I was felt so less than, and I felt like I was deprived um, of all the things that other people had, I didn't have, and I, so I deserved to steal these things um, so that I could have more money, but then, I was, you know, I was buying the food that was in my bag, that was in my cart, it was the you know, French manicure kit or something like that that I was doing. But I figured that made me nervous when I got um, caught. So I figured moving to New York City would be 
a good idea because I was absolutely terrified of ever ending up at Rikers Island. And I, and it, I figured it would control my behavior, you know. And it, it didn't completely, but it did a lot. I mean, I, I didn't do much that would get me in Rikers. Um, I, never, I never went there. But I was a chronological um, drinker and driver. Um, and I eventually in, and would drive around the streets of New York City in my car. Um, and then they, they instituted a policy in New York um, where if you were even suspected of DWI, this was like in the mid-90s, um, your car was impounded, never to get it back. And I thought, well, i got to get rid of the car, you know. <laughs> I was like, the car's got to go because my, I'll be humiliated if, I, if my parents find out that the car got impounded. So then I could drink even better because then I could um, take cabs and the subway everywhere that I went, and I did that a lot. And um, I lived in New York City all, you know, all by myself. And I think that for me the biggest consequence of my drinking in my teens and my 20s was less than losing everything. You know, I never got married or had kids to lose my, my marriage or my kids. Um, and I had a union job, so it was very difficult for me to have lost my job. But I never got anything. And I could not sustain a normal relationship with a human being whatsoever. Not a love relationship. And even friendships were very uneven and very unfair for them um, because I was so completely self-centered, <laughs> um, you know, that I just took people hostage all the time. And eventually, you know, they would either not like me or, or want to have anything to do with me. And I would scratch my head wondering, you know, what was going on. I had no sense that it was um, alcoholism might be the problem. Although I had been called an alcoholic by a friend when I was about 20. And he noticed while we were on the phone that I was drinking while I was on the phone. And he said, you know, if you're 20 years old and you're drinking alone in your apartment when you're on the phone, you're an alcoholic. And again, I just thought, Okay, you know, if I'm gonna if I'm an alcoholic, then I'm just gonna be the best damn alcoholic I can be, and this is gonna be great, you know. Um, but I was suffering emotionally from so many spiritual illnesses, you know, that I had no idea about. I really thought, I remember wanting to be part of the crowd and wanting to be like everybody else, but feeling so horrifically different. It wasn't until I finally um, sort of really joined AA that I finally felt part of a crowd of any sort ever. Um, and so it was very painful and I was very lonely and all of that kind of stuff. And my drinking progressed and progressed and um, it was every day, although I was still going to work and still paying for an apartment. At one point, um, at 27 years old, I think my alcoholism and the drinking wasn't working as well. And I, and I did, and this is not a, a drug story, but because um, I, I really do believe that it was my alcoholism that, that led me to this, I picked up cocaine and managed to become a flaming cocaine addict for the next three years um, until I finally got sober when I was 30. And I, I know for a fact that it was alcoholism that led me to that, but that was just a symptom of my alcoholism because, um, A, I was drunk, you know, the first time I did it, and it was when I was still trying to find, like, more adventure and all of that kind of stuff. And actually, my morals and my my actual best thinking told me not to do that. My father had instilled the fear. It didn't work with alcohol with my dad, but it did work with every other drug under the sun. He tried to scare me away from it. It actually worked. I was always afraid of what these other drugs were going to do to me. So at least with alcohol, I knew what the next beer was going to make me feel like. And I knew that the gin and tonic was going to probably put me over the edge. Like I could measure those things. But the other stuff I had no idea about. So I never tried until one day my alcoholism progressed to a point when it wasn't enough. And I, and I, um, I tried out the other substances and it took me on a whirlwind for three years that if, without that, I wouldn't be here today. No question about it. Um, because I was a committed alcoholic, you know what I mean? That was part of my identity. And I, I, I can't even imagine what could have happened that would have made me give that up or understand that I really um, needed to back then. If it weren't for the drugs that never, ever, ever happened until I had my second and a half glass of wine. Like, I remember measuring it. If I didn't have anything to drink for one night, which was rare, I could go without, I wouldn't have any desire to do drugs. It was when I got just tipsy enough that the moment happened that I, that I had to, um, had to do that. And uh, I always sort of thought when I first came into AA that I had a really low bottom because by the time I um, went into rehab, um, I was, no, most of my, I didn't do drugs with any of my friends. That was like after we were all done out at the bar, I would go into the, like the underground of New York City and find these crazy people and these, or, you know, actually they were really people just like me. Um, <laughs> but we were all, we, we would find each other. It's amazing how that happens. And I would party with them for days on end. And um, 
put myself in life-threatening situations on a, on, a, on a weekly basis. It wasn't an everyday thing because it took me long enough to recover from one bender that I, um, I, I could go sometimes a couple weeks before I would do it again. But, but I started to get into this whole thing about um, danger and, and, and boredom, really. And so some crazy thing would happen with people, one party episode, and then the next time I would have to up the ante and make it even more dangerous and hanging out with complete strange men and some women, but strange men who I'd never met before, had no idea who they were, and nobody ever had any idea. None of the people who loved me had any idea where I was or that anything was even wrong. They all just must have thought I was home in bed or at work. Um, so if anything had happened to me, you know, nobody ever would have, it would have been really awkward. Um, <laughs> but I got into it in, in some weird way. Like I was so bored and I was so empty inside with my life and, and feeling loved and feeling like my life was at all interesting. It definitely was not the Stevie Nicks standing on the on the table dancing. That was not the way my life was. Most people didn't even want to hang around me because my personality was just so objectionable um, that, uh, so, you know, so this went on and on and on until I um, bottomed out. And, oh, because it would get worse and worse and worse. And one day I would meet a stranger and hang out with them for 48 hours and not be dead and be like, wow. Um, And then the next day it would be, you know, something completely different. And it would get worse and worse and worse until... Finally, I remember one day, um, I started to realize that I had a problem about six months, nine months before I got sober, and I actually was partying with this guy in, in Tribeca in New York City, and uh, he told me about, we, you know, it was one of those things that lasted, and drinking, of course, was always there. I never, ever um, did drugs without drinking. Um, it's like smoking cigarettes, you know, um, always was drinking while I was doing it. But So I was with this guy, and he told me that um, he had... A, he was getting very paranoid as the as the hours progressed, and um, it was getting very uncomfortable to hang out with him. And his family ended up coming in while we were together and doing an intervention on him, like while I was there. And uh, yeah, and unfortunately, they wanted nothing to do with me. You know, they didn't care about me at all. They wanted me out of the house, and they and I left. And I just remember sort of leaving his house, feeling like a real turd. Like how could this? And, I, and feeling all alone, feeling sorry for myself that nobody cared about me that way. I'm in as much trouble as he is. Um, but while we were together, his name was Bobby, he told me about his therapist, who was an addiction specialist. And he, this is Mitch. And he said, you know, Mitch is fantastic. He's the best. But here's Bobby, like, bottoming out on drugs and alcohol. So I don't know how good I thought this therapist could be, because Bobby wasn't sober. But I remembered the name, and it was the only sort of thing I had. So I, I went to Mitch, and I um, went to this therapist and wanted to talk to him about um, all of my problems and why my, my, you know, why my father doesn't love me enough, and maybe that's why I drink so much and why I'm so insecure and have such low self-esteem, and maybe once I figure those things out, I won't want to drink as much or I won't need to. And then that won't lead to the drugs, which are leading to me putting my life in danger on a weekly basis. Um, And he pegged me as an alcoholic the second visit and uh, because I showed up having been drinking, um, which is a big sign. It was like six o'clock in the evening. And he and he said, I really suggest that you um, consider going to AA meetings. And I and I listened to him. And I just remember the first thing I remember thinking when he said that, I said, I will never be one of those people with those glittery bumper stickers on my car that say easy does it. I will never do that. That's all. That's the only image I had of AA was the glittery bumper stickers, which I have one now. I do. And I give them to all my sponsees. And I I love to instill fear in my sponsees that they have to put that on their car. You know, like, yeah, you have to stay sober. You have to do that. Um, but I love it. And now I love it because I love the whole camaraderie about it. Like if you're driving down the highway and you see one and you guys, you know, you can give each other the thumbs up. And, you know, I think it's awesome. But back then, boy, it was so offensive to me what he said to me. And I remember walking out of his office and I thinking, um, it's, he is so misguided. Like that is, and that's really very dangerous information to give to somebody that they should go to AA. You know, and it's rude, by the way, you know. <laughs> I remember this is deliberately what I was thinking. And by the time I got home, I thought I should get his license taken away from him because that is really bad therapy to be giving. And I, I, I investigated how to do that a little bit, you know. Unfortunately, my mother's also a therapist. So 
Um, I knew it was it was uh, par for the course, and I knew he was right, and I went back, which was weird, because I really was so angry at him, but something, and I just think it was grace, something compelled me to go back to this guy, and I kept going back to him, and I kept saying, can we talk about something other than my drinking and my drug use, and he kept saying, no, we're going to talk about this until you um, address it. And um, at the same time, so I really knew I had a drug problem. That was the big thing. I knew I had a drinking problem, too, but I didn't care about the drinking problem. I knew I had a drug problem, and I figured if I could stop the drugs for a while that I could go back, you know, my drinking would, my my normal alcoholism could resume. Um, (laughs) But I couldn't stop the drugs with, while I was still drinking. It just was impossible. So I... Would, I would go to work. I worked for the state of New York where they, thank God, they had such a, a big, thick union that I, there was no firing me. Um, but they would have if they, if they could have. And I, um, so I would go to work completely bombed after not even having slept, going from one guy's house straight to work, stinking and having pan, like these most major panic attacks. It was just horrible. Um, and, um, I would go back then. It was it was it was 11 years ago now or so, but the internet was still big then. And I would go online and I would search for recovery, anything but AA meetings. But I would go to rehab because I thought rehab was pretty cool. You know, the stars and celebrities go to Betty Ford, and you know, you must get massages and yoga classes, and and I I would do rehab. Um, but <laughs> I thought that sounded pretty dramatic, like that was along the Stevie Nicks kind of line. But I couldn't afford it, you know, and I was very offended by how much it cost. I would call these rehabs and be, you know, and ream them out because they cost 15000 The best ones, you know, cost $15,000. And so I never, I didn't get help for quite a long time. But I would go online and I would investigate and I would call and I ended up with a big, thick stack of, of papers about different rehabs to go to. And I fell into an online chat room um, at Hazleton, which they don't have anymore, but um Thank goodness they had it then because it was a chat room. It was like an informal AA meeting all the time. And I wasn't trying to quit drinking, but I was trying to quit drugs. So I would go on there and I would count days from drugs while I'm sitting there drinking my wine. It was so insulting. Um, but And they knew what I was doing. But they loved, you know, even though it was all over the Internet, they kind of loved me until I could love myself. And they planted some of the AA seeds for me. Um, and eventually, because even though I wouldn't go to a meeting, I could sort of ex- was a little bit exposed to it there. And they were lovely people, and it was that whole they loved me until I could love myself thing. Um, And there was one person there who lived not that far from me. And he ended up taking me, getting me to go to my first AA meeting finally. And I'll be honest, I mean, I only went because I thought maybe I could have a crush on him. You know, I was like, this guy seems pretty great. And I'm very, you know, 30 years old, and I'm all alone. And so uh, to impress the guy, basically, was the reason why I went, which is why they say, like, in the preamble, you know, your only requirement for, for membership is a desire to stop drinking. I would sit there in the beginning and be like, well, I guess I'm not a member, you know. I'm, I'm fooling you all because I don't have a desire to stop drinking, but I'm, but I'm still here. And um, I thought I was so smart. Um, and it started, but I really admired this guy, and I really respected him. And I know that they say, you know, women with the women and men with the men. But I'm telling you, if any woman had tried to 12-step me back then, I would have probably punched them in the face. There was no way I could take direction from a female at that point. I hated women. I mean, I don't know if you ever meet a woman who comes into AA being like, I love women. We get along so great. You know, we all, every sponsee I've ever had has a real problem with other women in the beginning. So I'm really grateful that this guy, Ed, was there for me at that time. And um, he had a huge uh, positive impact on me. And for whatever reason, I kept listening and I talked to him on the phone and I would keep going to meetings. I would not raise my hand and introduce myself. I would not call myself an alcoholic. Um, I would not share. I would not laugh. I did not think what you people were laughing about in these meetings were funny at all. I thought it was very serious business. And, you know, what the heck's going on? So... Anyway, to make a long story short, I finally had one of those nights of complete chaos where I ended up in several different strange places in, in one night. And I, uh, it was like noon on a Wednesday, and I was supposed to have left for a business trip to Syracuse, New York that morning. Um, and I kept putting off this refundable flight by an hour, thinking I could sleep on the plane if I could just physically get myself out of this person's apartment and stop using. And I couldn't. I was, like, planted there for, like, 48 hours. It's, it's crazy what happened. Um, 
so that I, w- I realized that I was about to lose my job, if, or at least I was going to get in serious trouble, that there were no more excuses for why I kept screwing up work, and there was really no good excuse whatsoever for missing this business trip. Nothing that I could think of except t- saying I'm going to rehab. So I, uh, and I just remember, but I remember feeling also like I was, um, like it took me about an hour to, to walk three or four blocks home, and I remember feeling like my legs were so heavy, and I had lived in a four-story walk-up. I was going to have to go up four flights of stairs, and I had no idea. And I was completely inappropriately dressed in the middle of Midtown Manhattan in the middle of the day while everybody else was in business attire. I was not. And... Um, it was devastating, and I, and I just remember thinking at the bottom of the stairs, trying to get up to my apartment, thinking for the first time ever in my whole life, saying, God, if you get me to the top of these stairs, I promise I will never have a drink again. I will get help. Um, and he got me to the top of the stairs. And so when I, um, and I felt it, and I swear to you, I remember feeling lifted up those stairs. Like I remember feeling like it wasn't a whole lot of work to get up those stairs. It's the, one of the most sort of spooky spiritual moments that I that I remember feeling um, lifted up there and so when I got into my apartment I went straight to the my coffee table where my thick list of of uh, rehabs were and I called the first one on the list which was Karen Foundation and I went Um, it was crazy I mean I called them that day and I said you know they knew who I was I was no stranger to them over the phone Um, (laughs) but I said you you know, my name is Anna, and I, I've called you before, and I need to go to rehab, and I need to go now. And you and I had called AA, by the way, several times and reamed them out probably in the middle of the night on their on the intergroup line. And you know, they don't all that they would do is take you to a meeting or um, or or tell you to go to the hospital, and they wouldn't even recommend rehabs. And that's really what I wanted was the whole rehab experience. So I um, set, called her and I said, you know, to this poor woman on the phone, I said, you have to, I need to go to rehab and you have to take me and you have to take me right now. Because if I, if, if I hang up the phone and go to sleep, when I wake up, I'm going to know for a fact that I don't need help anymore. It's like Bill Wilson in the, the promises in the Bible. It's like, I know that my experience just now was so bad. It was like this moment of grace that I knew exactly what was happening to me. And once I wake up, I will have made a new resolve to never do this again. And I've done this a thousand times now, and I know it's not going to work. But right now, I'm willing to go. So take my credit card and get me three and a half hours away to Pennsylvania. And she was very sweet. And she said, you know, I, I do actually have to hang up with you for a minute. But don't worry. You know, I'm going to call you back. Don't go to sleep. And, you know, I found out later that supposedly they bumped other people to get me in. And, and I called my mom, my poor mother who had absolutely no idea I was an alcoholic um, or a drug addict, and she, she came and, and got me and, and brought me there the next day, and I spent 28 days at um, Karen Foundation. Um, again, my plan when I got there was to quit drinking for about nine months. I remember I had the nine-month figure in my head so that the drugs and the drinking could be addressed all at once, and then I could go back to drinking in nine, in nine, nine months, and then the drugs would be so far in my past that I wouldn't ever go back to that again. That's all I wanted. No desire to stop drinking permanently, really. Um, And, you know, when you go to rehab, all they give you is the big book to read. They take away everything else, like your Vanity Fair, your Harper's Bazaar, (laughs) Glamour. They take it all away, and all you can have is the book. And I just refuse to read it all, all month. I'd rather just lay down and stare at the ceiling if I had to read that book, because it was, in my opinion, it was so outdated and so sexist, you know, all these things. And there's just no way I'm going to read this book. And so I waited until about the 28th day to, to finally read, read that book when I was really bored um, and ready to go home. And when I read those, in Bill's story, the part about, I remember, well, there's two things that really struck me. But one was when he described himself as restless, irritable, and discontent. I almost threw that book across the room because I, that was defined so perfectly what I had felt my whole entire life, those three words. I was like, oh, my gosh, he totally has me figured out. This is so strange. Um, and also, while I was in rehab, uh, 9-11 happened, and I worked right across the street from the World Trade Center. And so there was this moment of grace where I felt very sort of protected by God for the first time in my life. Like, wow, you know, not only am I not there, I am, um, my whole family knows I'm here. So for the first time, like, they know instantly when that happened that I was safe. 
And um, I don't really think I would have had the strength of character to have made it through what my coworkers and my friends made it through on that day. Um, and I, ha- I got to watch the whole thing from a distance. And I remember being, you know, very grateful to God that that happened. And I thought, wow, of all places, I'm in rehab while this happens. Like, this must really be a path that I'm meant to, to be on. And that grace lasted for a few days, probably. I mean, no, none of my grace ever, like, lifted this whole, my whole, my attitude problem permanently. Um, but it, it helped me stay in rehab. Like, and it was, it was a, a wonderful, I mean, honestly, it was a wonderful gift, obviously, to not have to be there in the middle of, of that chaos when, when it happened. Um, so that spurred me along a little bit. I, when I got out of rehab, the guy who had 12-stepped me um, uh, said that, what I should do is get a sponsor the minute. Oh, well, you know, they were letting me out of rehab and I was very offended that they didn't um, subscribe or prescribe um, aftercare like um, like the long range women's facility, because everybody else was getting to go to that long range women's facility. But I realized and they just sent me home and I realized in hindsight that the reason why they did that was because I indicated absolutely no intention of staying sober. You know, so I had no desire. I was just such a jerk (laughs) in rehab. I was so argumentative. I was so snotty. It was really, an, it, rehab is a great place to really highlight your character defects because I really see it now. Um, you know, I was just so, uh, just such a, a jerk to all of them. Um, but they, and they didn't, they just prescribed like AA meetings and some sort of a, um, of a group therapy thing. Um, but my, this guy told me within 24 hours of getting re- out of rehab, you should probably go to a meeting and you should get a sponsor. If you have any, and he said, you know, if you have any faith in God whatsoever right now, you'll just pick your sponsor's name out of a book. Because he had a feeling I was going to be really difficult with this whole sponsor thing, because I hated women in general. Um, and I didn't, you know, I was completely filled with self-will. I had no desire to, to work this program. But honest, honestly, you know, and I hope this helps somebody for sounding, I sound like such a shallow person, but honestly, I think I did a lot of that stuff in the early days to impress this guy. <laughs> I mean, it was like, okay. I'll, I, and the other thing was, my family had now learned that I was an alcoholic. And my mother was very crushed by the fact that as a therapist, she missed the whole thing. She had no idea that I was an alcoholic. And my father was an AA member, and he had no idea. But that was perfectly strategic, because ever since I was 18 years old, I lived at least two and a half hours away from my family. So they never saw me drink. Um, and I remember once being in, like, 18, 19, and taking a drink of wine and my mother watching me very, very closely to see how I was drinking that wine. And I knew enough about my mother to not do that very often in front of her because she would, she would, um, she'd pin me. Um, so she was, she was on board with this whole, you got to get sober thing. She was, um, fascinated with Alcoholics Anonymous and she was kind of like a sociology class for her. You know, she was in it for the long haul now. Um, and she was ready to take everything she learned in the family education program and teach it to all of her clients. And ugh. Um, so everybody was watching me now. All these loved ones who had had no idea that I was as sick as I was were now watching every move I made. And I couldn't just go back to drinking very easily. So I decided in my head that I was going to have to give at least look like I'm giving AA a, a try. Um, so that I could prove that it didn't work. And then, in nine months or so, when I could prove that I tried everything that AA suggested and it didn't work, then I could go back to drinking with a clean conscience and nobody could give me a hard time. So I really did go into it as so argumentative um, and challenging every single thing that was, that was suggested to me. And, but I, I, I met this amazing woman. I just couldn't, can't, still can't believe it. it's the most important relationship I've had since, except for my mother, um, since in my whole life, uh, her name was Roe, and I picked her name out of a book at the 79th Street Workshop in Manhattan, which if you ever are in the city, you should go to it. It meets all the time um, in the basement of a church, of course. And they, in New York, you know, a lot of times they do a sponsorship book. And I looked down the list of the women, and she wasn't there that night or anything, but I just liked the name Roe. You know, I thought that was cool. And she had two years sober, and I called her, and I, th- I think actually I called like three women on that list, and she was the only one who called me back. Um, and she met me at a meeting the next day, and she became, you know, my sponsor. And um, it was amazing. It was so amazing to me that a, per- a, a woman would invest so much time in another person. I did not get the motivation at all. Like, why are you doing this? Like, I kind of, to be honest, for a while, I kind of thought she was a little bit of a loser. 
You know, I was like, why are you like, I am certainly when I get sober, I am not going to have time to be helping all these people because I am going to go to my very important, busy life. And I couldn't believe how much time she spent with me and, you know, immediately started taking me through the steps. And, you know, going through the steps the first time was somewhat helpful in theory. You know, I went through it the first time sort of in theory, but I have learned that I am the kind of person who has to make the most hideous mistakes and really, like, slam my face into the pavement of every issue that I have before I get it and before I'm willing to change. So I did the steps with her, and um, she was very diligent, and she was very generous with her time, and she was more than happy to argue with me on the phone for hours at a time if I wanted to debate philosophy or whatever. Um, She gave me suggestions, and if I didn't take them, I remember testing her, and, like, you know, I was supposed to call her that night, and I didn't call her for three days, and then I would say, you know, I bet you're going to fire me now, you know. And she said, she was British, you know, oh, Anna, you will fire me long before I ever fire you, you know. Because, and she told me, she wasn't helping me really for, for, for me as much as it was, you know, for her. It didn't matter to her whether I stayed sober or not. She was just going to share what she had and love me as best as she could and I could really do what I want. So, and I, I, I joke about it, but I think deep down, I mean, I really was very intrigued with this idea of belonging to something, um, feeling, starting to get this feeling like, You've always been lost in the world. You've never known where you belong or what your purpose is in life. And all of a sudden, this this big purpose is in front of you. You know, this, you're, all of a sudden, you're a member of a club. You know, in college, I wanted to be in a sorority, but I wouldn't dare go through the initiation of being in a sorority. So I remember I was thinking I would start my own so I could avoid the whole having to do it. You know, it would be mine. Um, but I never did that. And I just never belonged anywhere. Uh, but all of a sudden, I was belonging in AA, even in those early, early days. And... Um, it was it was really eerie and it was sticking with me. And, and the people in New York, I mean, the, the, the people I was surrounded with the first year were just out of this world. Um, and I was still very crabby and I would go into meetings and I would cross my arms and I wouldn't talk to anybody and I wouldn't laugh and I wouldn't stay late and I would usually come late. Um, but I maintained this connection with Roe and I actually maintained this connection with the, the guy who 12-stepped me um, for a long time. And it was a beautiful first year. It was it was pretty great. And when I find, you know, I, I did the first step. It was not difficult at all. I did a written, for, I mean, I really did the first step by sort of going to rehab and, and being willing to go to AA meetings. But I also did some written work. I did a long list of all of the times in my life that drinking had caused me a problem um, and um, or anything that I regretted. I just kind of made a whole list of all of the things that I regretted in my life. And they all somehow were surrounded by drinking. I had no idea until I really put that down onto paper, so that was really powerful. And then we talked, you know, we did the second step and the, and the third step, and we talked a lot about God, and I was very resistant to God. And I, I um, was, remember, you know, I was raised going to church somewhat, you know, um, and nothing bad ever really happened to me. But I just remember being, like, I remember when my niece was born, and I was like 25, and I was her godmother, and we went to church, and it was Easter. She was being baptized on Easter. And, uh, he, the, the, the priest was talking about Easter and God and love and God loves you and all of this kind of stuff. And I remember just thinking, like, who is he talking about? Like, this God that he is talking about. I know he loves my niece. I know he loves my family, but I do not believe that he loves me at all. Like, I just felt, always felt in my whole life, like, I was a mistake. Like, I wasn't meant to be here. Like, I'm, like I was on a completely opposite sort of plane um, from everybody else, and I could not get that feeling out of me until long after I came into AA. It lasted for a really long time. Um, so the idea of God was really difficult for me, and we ended up just sort of choosing a definition of God that I could sort of deal with um, through going through a little guided meditation, and I picked this sort of image that resembled my dead grandmother and Jabba the Hutt a little bit. Like there was this whole <laughs> sitting by a pond... It was really, it was like a mix of my grandmother, Jabba, and it worked for whatever reason for a little while. It did. And I would pray to this, to this, and I would just use it. And I, and I did honestly use AA and the people in AA that I had met as my higher power and her. I mean, you know, anything other than myself telling me what to do at this point was going to be better than me, than me telling myself what to do. Um, and just trying that, that exercise of not exercising my own self-will in every situation was, so scary for me. Um, 
but I did it. And she had, was filled with, this woman was just amazing. I mean, she had such a great life and she was, had such a peaceful existence that, you know, I, I was pretty safe. I felt pretty safe in her, in her care. Um, and then we got to the fourth step and, um, I had to make a big, big dramatic deal out of the fourth step. And, uh, I had to do it on, I remember on, on, um, on Microsoft Excel and on the computer because the columns were going to be so long that there was no way I was going to be able to write all of that down. And I remember her saying, you know, it says in the big book that it's with pen and paper, but, you know, if you really, you know, if you want to do it the way the big book says, that's what the big book says, pen and paper. But if you want to do it on the computer, you know, I don't know. I, she's like, you know, I did it on pen and paper and I haven't had a drink since, so... It's really up to you. I did it on the Excel spreadsheet, and I, you had to take like three pieces of eight and a half by eleven paper and tape it together to get the whole thing. I still have it. Thank goodness I still have it. I'm so glad I didn't um, throw it away because it's so helpful for me when I help others now um, to be able to look back on on, on that stuff. Um, and it's so amazing what I thought my my problems were and what my re- my resentments were back then. Um, and so I did it with her, and I really had a, a, spent a long time objecting to, cert, to telling certain secrets. Even though I had actually told them in rehab and stuff, this, I, all of a sudden I decided that my past behavior and stuff was so scandalous that nobody was going to know that except for, for me and, and for God. And I literally had to have like a conference call with my sponsor and the guy who 12-stepped me, the three of us, where we could figure out how I was going to get comfortable just going through the exercise of sharing the most personal things about myself with this woman. And um, I finally did it. And she was so brilliant when I shared some of those things. She shared back things that had happened to her where she had the exact, shared the exact same feelings, even though her experiences were different. She had, you know, the exact same feelings. And to this day, I, I you know, I don't talk about everything on that list. I don't, I, I don't, won't not talk about everything on my fourth step list if I need to or am asked to and my experience can help somebody, I will, but I, I don't go into it in detail. Um, but it's, it is a really cool thing to know that somebody, she lives in England now, that she's got that in her vault. It's, it's, she's got all of me in that vault, and she's still taking good care of it. You know, it's a, it's a good feeling. Um, so it took me several months to get through the fourth and fifth step, um, but I did. And uh, she spent like three Saturdays, eight hours a day, sitting in her apartment with me going through these things because I had to argue and debate every single thing um, for a while until it became so obvious what my patterns are. It's a brilliant thing, the fourth and fifth step. It is so, if you haven't, I mean, if you, if you don't plan on doing it, just try it because it is out of this world. It changes everything. But the biggest thing for me that it changed was all of a sudden I was seeing where I was responsible for pretty much, if not absolutely every problem that I had ever had in my whole life. And, you know, I, you know, I didn't have a tragic childhood, but I had opinions and beliefs about my parents that were so unfair that were, that were, you know, developed when I was six. So I wasn't responsible for developing the beliefs because I was just a little kid. Um, but I was, I was now as a sober adult responsible for whether or not I changed those beliefs and changed those relationships or not. So, you know, all of a sudden it was like, wow, this, it's not because my daddy didn't love me enough because my daddy loved me as much as he knew how, and it was good enough. Um, it wasn't maybe what I would have wanted, but it was, but he did love me. Um, it was how I decided to let that make me feel. Um, and so all of a sudden, everything I believed about the way the world worked was wrong. It was a very raw feeling after the fifth step for me. And of course, you run into the sixth and the seventh step, which is all about changing those character defects. And that was god awful. I mean, that was a couple of months that was, I was just getting in trouble everywhere I went at work. I was like so exposed and so raw and so aware of my jerky behaviors that they were so on the surface that it made me an incredibly uncomfortable person for a long time. And I remember my favorite memory with my sponsor was I was driving to, it was Easter again, I think, or Thanksgiving. I was driving home to go visit my family. And um, I was compl- and my sponsor called me back and I pulled over on the side of the road and I was, tell- I was complaining to her about my mother. My mother, I just can't believe my mother. She thinks I'm not going to contribute to Thanksgiving dinner. And so, you know, she's sitting here telling me what I need to bring. And I come all the way from New York City, drive three hours to get home and all of this kind of stuff. And, and why should I, you know, how could she dare think I wouldn't contribute? You know, in the meantime, 
look at the facts. I had not, I had barely shown up at these things. I never contributed anything for all those years. And I, but I'm complaining about my mother and she's so awful. And, and Rose said to me, Oh, Anna, it must be awful to feel so selfish. <laughs> and I remember being like, me? I'm not selfish. And this was after I had done the step work. So it's not, that just goes to prove to me that it wasn't a one-time deal. I had to keep working these steps for the rest of my life. And it was right around when I needed to make amends to my mom. And I don't know about the other women in this room, but for me, the mom-daughter amend and relationship healing has been the hardest thing of all. Um, But when I got to, so that made it clear that most of my character defects were based around self-centeredness and fear. And that I was an incredibly self-centered person. And I can't believe it wasn't so obvious before, but it wasn't until I started to go through the step work. And then I had to, you know, I did my eight-step list, was really already made by doing a fourth and fifth. And I um, became prepared to do the ninth step. And this was about nine months into sobriety. And this was the magic moment for me. This was the time when I said I was going to go back to drinking, you know. Um, And I still kind of had that in the back of my mind. And... But in the big book, it says that we will be amazed before we are halfway through the ninth step. So I had this thought in my head, like, I'm going to do half of the ninth step. I'll, I'll do the easy ones. And I'm not, I won't do the financials. I'll do the financials after the promises come true. Because just in case they don't come true, I don't want to do those financials if I waste my money paying people back. I mean, not just, I mean, for me, it just goes to show, like, the first time you go through the steps is kind of in theory. It's like for practice. Um, cause I really wasn't getting all the concepts quite yet. Um, and I went, th- and I mean, you know, I went through halfway through the ninth step, did none of the financial amends. I owed thousands of dollars to department stores that I had stolen from. And, um, you know, um, in, in co- high school and college, I had stolen enough money from the restaurant that I worked for that I could buy a car with that money. Um, by, you know, I won't teach you how to do it, but, um, <laughs> you already know. Um, it was a, it was a used car. It was an old used car. It wasn't like a brand new one. But I owed these people money, and I owed needed to go sit down at an office and tell them what I had done, and it was humiliating. So I was really putting that stuff off for a while. Um, I did finally do those things because somewhere halfway through the ninth step, the promises didn't all come true the first time around because I wasn't truly halfway through the ninth step because I was only doing the steps sort of in theory the first time around. Um, but I did start to feel like against my best judgment and my my most sincere wishes, like I was a member of AA, like I belonged here, and like I was chosen, like I was a chosen one. Like most people who are alcoholics die of alcoholism, really. Most of them don't get help. They live miserable lives and they die. And very few people make their way into AA to begin with, and those who do, very few of them stay. And there's this small subset of people that stay. And and I started to realize, like, what a gift. How weird that this girl who never belonged to anything and never knew what her purpose in life was all of a sudden was doing was doing this. And I wanted to stick around. So I stuck around long enough to do the ninth step and to get through the 10th and 11th uh, and 12th. And somewhere around the 11th month, stepped me into the room and I became boyfriend and girlfriend. Um, And that was a, that lasted for about three months until that fell terribly apart and it was gut-wrenching to me I had known this person now for like two years and I really was very madly in love and I thought what's the point of getting sober if you're going to have your heart broken in sobriety like this is this is just too, too painful to bear um and I remember t- talking to my sponsor and you know just just she, uh, I remember her having me go back and read the part about the actor in the big book. And uh, I'm telling her all about him and what he did to me and how heartbroken I am. And she says, let's read this together. And we read the part about the actor. Each person is like an actor trying to run the whole show. And everything will be fine if you only do it, you know, this person's way. And um, we, re- we got through the whole part. And, and, I, and I was like, thank you. Yes, that is him. He did do that to me. And that's how dense I was. She was like, oh, I think you're missing the point. You know, let's read it again. And now, thank goodness she did that, because now, ten and a half years later, I swear that that part about the actor could be the solution to all my problems. Whenever I have a problem, I slip 
the problem into that scenario, and I read that, and, I look, and it helps me learn my part in things. And I learned my part in what I did to make that relationship um, happen and go south when the whole thing was inappropriate, shouldn't have happened in the first place. And um, I did many, it wasn't right away, but years later I did have the chance to make amends to him, and it was really wonderful. Um, he did not make amends to me, by the way, for the other side. <laughs> but that's okay. That's not why I did it. Um, so, but while I was going through this terrible heartbreak and thinking, like, what is the point of this? This woman called me um, and wanted my help. And she asked, she said I had written my number in the book at one of the meetings and would I be her sponsor? And I <laughs> called my sponsor. I was like, I can't possibly sponsor somebody in this condition, can I? I'm so distraught and overwrought with heartbreak. And she said, this is the ex- ex- exact time that you should be sponsoring somebody. And I was just miserable about this idea. I wasn't too keen on the whole idea of helping others from the very beginning to begin with. And now in the middle of this heartbreak, I have to talk to this woman. And it ended up being one of the best things, again, that has ever happened to me because I realized that that first night, Melissa was her name. We, she argued with me for 45 minutes about the principles of AA. And in that 45 minutes, I didn't think about myself once. And that was, I, I thought about her and I, and I, I felt so good not thinking about myself. And to this day, it doesn't matter if I'm thinking good things about myself or bad things about myself. If I think about myself for too long, I end up in a really, really crummy place. And so my goal is to, like, just think about others or think about nothing all the time. Um, and I sponsored <laughs> Melissa uh, and for a while, and it, it was very, very helpful. And I fell into this whole idea of... of the idea that I could possibly pass on the wisdom that Roe had passed on to me as gracefully and beautifully as she did it was really pretty amazing. Um, and I also remember talking to my friend on the phone saying, you're not going to believe this. I have to sponsor somebody now. And I am just beside myself. And I really don't get the, I said to my friend Tierney, I said, I really don't get the point of getting sober if you're going to keep losing things. You know, what did I do? How did this happen to me? And she said, she called me Banana. Banana, I can tell you the reason why, why um, you got sober or, you know, why this happened to you. It's so that you can stay sober and help other alcoholics achieve sobriety. Like, that's your purpose in life. Didn't you know that? And I didn't really know that that was what the deal I was signing with AA. And it doesn't have to be the deal that you sign with AA if you don't want to. But I remember thinking, oh, I need a purpose. I've always wanted a purpose. And I've never, uh, besides the Stevie Nicks joke, which was actually more literal than you can imagine, I really didn't know what my purpose was in life. And so now it's like, how weird is it that AA takes the sickest people, you know, mind, body, and spirit, some of the sickest people, and turns us into the most spiritual beings who are on this earth to help others get sober? I mean, that's pretty amazing that we have to go through what we went through to get to a point where we can um, dedicate our lives to helping others. And so somewhere around that time was when I really sort of signed the AA membership card and said, I'm in for the long haul. And I'm, and now my life is about not as much about myself as it is about helping others. Um, and on my best days, 10 and a half years later, that's what my life is about. It's not always, you know, by any means that way. It's, it's, very easy to fall back into selfishness and self-centeredness if you don't um, keep practicing these principles. Um, but I have, and, and like I said, despite my best judgment, I've sponsored many, many women. Not all of them, by any stretch of the imagination, have gotten sober, um, but a lot of them have, and I'm, now I'm watching them help others, and it's just, it's an out-of-this-world feeling. Like, I just can't believe it. Um, and I now, finally, after sort of going through that initial first year and a half where everything was sort of in theory, then I really applied myself to some serious step work on a regular basis. I even do a, um, an annual house cleaning with my sponsor, Sponsor, um, where we, go, we spend you know, three or four days going through new resentments and helping others. And we, all, we do like mutual fifth steps with each other. It's like a big group thing. And um, you know, whatever I can to sort of stay on top of, of the program um, and stay in it, I, I do it. And, you know, one of the most poignant things for me and one of the hardest things for me has been that of, of the things that I wanted out of life, and like I wanted to be a mother, I wanted to be a wife, I wanted to have a big house or a big penthouse apartment on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, and I wanted nannies, and all these things that I wanted. I didn't, none of them, n- none of my literal dreams have come true. 
in sobriety. Um, and I have really had to learn what life beyond your wildest dreams really means. So I've gotten things in my life that I didn't even know I wanted. And I've decided that that's what life beyond your wildest dreams must mean, like helping others. I didn't know I wanted to be somebody who dedicated my life to helping others. I didn't know I my life to helping others. I didn't know that I was going to be a missionary going out there trying to help people get sober. I had no idea that this was a, a cause that I even cared about. Um, I've also become like passionate about animals and helping animals, and um, and I've actually become a, a, a worker, a real, a pretty good worker, a person who works really hard. I had like zero work ethic for a long time, um, and I fell into as a lot of people learned this morning. I fell into um, at about three years sober. I answered an ad in the paper for uh, the executive director of Stepping Stones, and I took that, and I it was a long process, but I got that job. And amazingly, that was amazing because, you know, it's the only job you can you go into an interview for. And being an alcoholic is an asset, you know, <laughs> they were like, why are and it wasn't a requirement. It didn't say, like, you must be an alcoholic, but they would ask you, why are you interested in this job? And they were wanting me to say whether this was a personal uh, interest to me. So I, I told them, I mean, you know, it was fantastic. And they also it was crazy because they asked me, like, uh, it seems like you moved around your jobs a lot, you know, in your 20s. You, you didn't stay in any one place for very long, you know, and I just was, I just said, I was restless, irritable, and discontent. <laughs> I was doing geographics, like, we all get this, and, and they did, and I ended up actually getting the job, um, because it was meant to be, and I've never worked harder in my life, um, and I've worked far harder than I ever would have thought as a younger person that I ever wanted to work. Um, so it's this, God has, you know, funny plans for us that have nothing to do with what our, our plans for ourselves are. Um, and I'm grateful. And I feel oddly, it, it still feels weird that it's part of my identity to be a person who is going to continue to dedicate my life to making AA as strong, if not stronger than it is now, and um, to continue to help others even when it's not convenient. And there have been so many times when it's not convenient, as many of us know. It's not an easy life. Um, being a missionary to help, help, you know, for AA and helping people. And it's not easy to follow these traditions. Um, and it's not, for me, it's not easy to love everybody and have compassion all of the time, you know. Um, but I feel like now, I, I don't know where it came from, per se. I think it was mostly my first sponsor. And I think it was a really good um, step in tradition meeting that I attended in my first year. They made me realize that everything I do in my life from here on out, once I become a card-carrying member of Alcoholics Anonymous, everything that I do is a reflection of Alcoholics Anonymous. So, you know, if I continue to be crabby with customer service people on the phone, which was a big favorite hobby of mine, um, re- I mean, just furious. And the reason I know now, because I did a good fourth step, that I felt unimportant. And I was going to make these, I was going to prove to myself that I was important by inserting all of my anger and all of my will on these customer service people and making them do exactly what I want and getting what I want. It was, it was vicious. Um, I, what if that person on the, other, on the other end of the phone needs help? Or what if that person someday, I mean, obviously they can't see me, but just as an example, what if they see me at an AA meeting and they hear my voice and they say, geez, if that's what AA is, then, then I don't want to be a part of it. You know? Or I always, like I always say, don't like give people the finger or do any of that stuff on your way to an AA meeting because you they will likely be going to the same meeting as you and they it will be very uncomfortable when you get there um you don't like I can't risk being rude to waiters and waitresses anymore I can't risk having outbursts um with people any of that because it it could potentially make AA one notch you know weaker um, and, and I, that is my higher power, I think, the vast majority of the time, um, is helping keep AA strong so that it's here, and, here for generations to come. I just feel now, oddly, so privileged to have been one of the chosen few who, who didn't die and who got the message strong enough that I actually care about carrying it forward. Um, you know, and that's why, you know, I come here tonight to speak, and I don't do this very often at all. I mean, I... Now I'm the I'm an old timer in AA. Now I have ten years. It's, it's unbelievable, and I'm I follow the instructions in the book, and I kind of sit back and, and sit in the back of the of the AA room, and I'm there for the newcomers if they need me, with a big smile and a big hug if they need me. But my younger, my you know the people who have been in, in sober less than me who have all that new 
newfangled enthusiasm. And um, I watched them go up to the newcomers and, and help others and take that young energy and keep the meeting going. Um, I, you know, I watched my sponsees making sure that no woman comes into a meeting without getting their phone number and without getting help. And, you know, I do the same if I need to. But mostly now I'm like an, I'm an elder. Uh, and, you know, I was the one who didn't want to even have get to 10 months. Like nine months was going to be my limit. Um, so, you know, but it, it, that's what it is. It's my life now. And, I'm, and I hope to God that it's my life forever um, because it, Suits. It turns out it suits me, and I think it really, you know, for especially for the the newcomers in the room, I, I beg you to just, even if you don't really, you know, I know that AA says, you know, you know that you the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking, but if if you know, do just keep it to yourself that you don't have a real big desire to stop drinking, and just try it, fake it till you make it for a while, because I did, and it worked. Um, and I was the last person. I, but by the way, I'm one of the only people from my class of rehab. Of folks that stayed sober, which is weird because um, I was the one that walked out of there saying I had no intention of staying sober. So AA is really great. God is really great. And it's amazing what life beyond your wildest dreams means. And it's worth going on that ride um, to see to see uh, where it takes you and also to help AA be here in another 75 years for our, you know, the next generations. And we all have a responsibility to do that. So with that, thank you very much for having me.